He forgot the letter in his hand, the one that had sent him into this mental tailspin. He focused instead on the television chatter in the background, the whirring and buzzing of a chainsaw outside. His Uncle Henry was readying firewood for the first cold snap, predicted for the end of the week. Not that meteorologists in Texas had ever nailed a prediction during Brandon's lifetime, but best be prepared, nevertheless. He heard, too, the companionable conversation of Aunt Bernice's home health care nurse, Betty Wilson, as she went about the delicate caretaking of her stroke patient. Brandon was well familiar with the routine. At straight-up noon, Betty would feed a tube down Bernie's throat and proceed to carefully syringe ensure into her stomach. Bernice's pale blue eyes would continue to stare into space, and occasionally Betty would stop and wipe the thin stream of drool from Bernice's lips. What lured Brandon into opening the long-closed door of the shrine, he couldn't guess. Or maybe he could. It was the letter again, taunting and leering up at him in streams of flourishing black ink on stark white stationery. The door stuck, gave with a sudden scrape of warped wood against the linoleum floor, then sprang open with a creak and a rush of cool, stale air that felt and smelled like wind from a grave. He left the door ajar, just enough for the sounds of all my children and Henry saw to infiltrate the quiet of the room. He felt as if he had been swept up in some macabre horror novel, a confused, brain-twisted protagonist being sucked down a vortex. Any moment he'd wake up to find himself knee-deep in excrement, because that's what hid beneath all the glittering, beautiful images lining the walls and shelves, images depicting a life of happiness and success bullshit. It was all bullshit. An elephant graveyard, bones of his past jutting up out of dust and shadows, musty, dark, and looming with treasures of his life, right down to the shimmering gold Oscar that resided by a life-size cardboard cutout of himself as Jesus Christ, leaning against the wall like a mummy's sarcophagus. He stared at it, feeling his face go from hot to cold to hot again, the critics had crucified him for his role in the resurrection, not because he'd done a shitty job of it. Hell, he'd been nominated for a second Oscar for his portrayal, but because his own life had hardly reflected anything remotely resembling virtuous. As a critic for People magazine had snubbed, it's hard, if not impossible, to suspend reality long enough while watching the resurrection to believe that the man on the screen playing Jesus Christ is anything more than the Hollywood tomcat and Tinseltown terror who couldn't even attend the premiere of the movie because he was locked away in Corcoran State Prison, for manslaughter, no less. And while the resurrection may prove to be one of the most successful box office smashes of the year, we all know that the women lining up to see this movie again and again have less interest in the divinity than in seeing the Hollywood hunk walk out of baptismal waters buck naked. He gave a dry laugh. The resurrection hadn't only proven to be the biggest grocer of the year, but of all time. Church attendance had risen 25% in the month following the movie's premiere, as reported by Newsweek, which plastered his Jesus image peering out through cell bars on the cover. The article, From Icon to Idol, Something is Wrong with This Picture, included photographs of the district attorney getting pelted by stones and protesters storming the prison gates demanding the Lord's release. 
as if people's warped reasoning and skewed realities were his fault. Brandon shook his head free of the memory and reluctantly looked around the room. More relics were showcased behind glass, an unopened General Mills cereal box with his grinning, snaggletoothed image beaming up at the buyer. Sales had risen 50% within six months of his gracing the box, along with a commercial that debuted during the Super Bowl. That commercial had led to others. Cola, candy, games, children's cold medicine, jello pudding, which he couldn't eat, because every time he so much as smelled it, he puked. By the time he turned eight, he'd landed his first television series, and his face was emblazoned across TV Guide four times over the next five years. Each time after, the show won an Emmy for Best Drama Series. The series had been about a family of delinquent foster care kids. Brandon billed over the adult star, who eventually became so pissed at being billed below a brat whose mother slept with the producers to get the little shit his star billing, that he refused to renew his contract for a sixth season which was just as well. By the time Brandon reached his 13th birthday, the rumblings of trouble had begun to filter through Tinseltown as ominously as earthquake aftershocks. The once cute-as-a-bug, angelic-faced Brandon Carlyle had a King Kong-sized attitude and a streak of wildness that would eventually put Charlie Sheen and Robert Downey Jr. in the shade. Now Brandon peered down through the glass case at the preserved TV guides, with each edition, his image subtly shifted from the sparkling, wide-eyed enthusiasm of an eight-year-old to the evolving, sharp-edged adolescent with turbulent, cut-to-the-quick eyes that made most adults uncomfortable. He wasn't America's darling any longer. Nevertheless, they came to see him on the big screen in masses because there was something hypnotic in the way he sucked them in and rattled their defenses. The critics likened him to James Dean and a young Marlon Brando. Cool, tough... Wicked, heartbreaking, accomplished, brilliant, perhaps the finest young actor in the last three decades. There were framed movie posters on the walls and magazine covers. He'd made People eight times, once as sexiest man alive. There was Movie Line, Entertainment Weekly, Vanity Fair, and even Cosmo as the man most women fantasized about while having sex. Of course, there were other photos. Brandon with women... Models, actresses, a photo of him in Paris with Princess Diana, snapped just weeks before her death. Another rollerblading with John Kennedy Jr. in Central Park. But the photograph most cherished by Bernice and Henry was the one that included them, taken backstage moments after Brandon had won his Oscar for Best Actor in a Dramatic Role for A Dark Night in Jericho. He'd flown Henry and Bernice in on a leer, treated them to a shopping spree on Rodeo Drive, put them up at the Beverly Hilton. Before several billion people, he dedicated his Oscar to Bernice and Henry for their love and support, and not a breath had been wasted on his mother, also in the audience. As the camera panned in tight, Cara Carlyle's expression had turned as stiff and white as a corpse's. The next morning, the headlines had declared, Mommy Dearest Snubbed at Oscars. Kara's quoted response to Brandon's success had been, The committee must have had their heads up their asses. Darling Brandon, I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. Years of dreaming, hoping, watching. Brandon blinked the film of sweat from his eyes and reread the letter in his hand. Somehow, it seemed appropriate to read it here, 
surrounded by memories of who and what he used to be. A movie star, a heartthrob to millions. But that was then, when such success invited all sorts of perverted idolatry and fanaticism. Now he was a nobody living in bumfuck Texas, a washed-up, has-been actor, a recovering alcoholic, an ex-con with about as much sex appeal as weak old roadkill. I've been watching you, always you, morning, noon, and night, but you look right through me. Oh, how I despair. Cruel, cruel man. Because of you, I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. When the time is right, my sweet darkling, we'll be together. I didn't follow you from California to let you slip through my fingers now. Until then, I am simply anticipating. Mr. Brandon? A hand touched his back. Brandon jumped and turned. Betty Wilson, his aunt's nurse, took a startled step back, her eyes wide and her mouth slack in surprise. My goodness, dear, I didn't mean to startle you. Gracious, you're white as a sheet. Is something wrong? Her gaze dropped to the letter in his hand, and her thin black eyebrows drew together. Shaking his head, Brandon refolded the letter and slid it into the back pocket of his jeans. No, nothing wrong. He released a shaky breath. The room, it's creepy, like a boneyard. I don't know why I came in here, and it's depressing as hell. He stepped around her, back into the warmth of the sunny yellow kitchen with its frilly white curtains on the windows and the smell of a raisin pie wafting from the oven. The security of it nestled around him like a fuzzy blanket.